Turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 1 this morning. I'm going to start in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. We have been going through the book of Mark. We started a few weeks ago. And we're now here in chapter one where he picks leaders. Um, last summer, I brought out a good friend of mine. Some of you were here. You remember him, Bill Buffington. He's a pastor of Calvary Chapel in Inglewood, California. Um, Bill is a fantastic friend of mine. We have, um, we've been friends for over 20 years. Our daughters uh, were in each other's weddings. Um, you know, he's probably one of my closest friends on earth. I've, I've watched his ministry start and, and, you know, be what it's become in, in Los Angeles. He's watched this one um, as well. We, we are constantly calling each other and praying for each other, you know. Um, incidentally, they, they need a building, so pray for him in that, um, you know. But, but we've done that for, for the longest of times. But here's the thing, you guys. Bill and I couldn't be more different. We could not be more different. To begin with, Bill's black and I'm white. Okay, very different there. Bill grew up in the inner cities of Los Angeles. I grew up in the suburbs. Okay, Bill has a whole different social economic upbringing than I did. Right? Bill likes hip hop. Right? I like rock. And before I became a Christian, when I got drunk, I liked country music <laughs> <laughs> and any kind of other music when you're in that state. <laughs> Um, the biggest difference, though, between Bill and I is he raises and he sells bull mastiffs. You know what that is? That's a big, giant, man-eating dog, right? I, on the other hand, cuddle with little white poodles. <laughs> we could not be more different. Um, yet, despite all of our difference, you guys, he's closer to me than my blood relatives. He's closer to me than, 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 than my own family. In 2002, I went to... I went to Russia, um, and when I got off the plane, I couldn't believe my eyes. I, I saw soldiers everywhere. They were at every gate. They were armed with, with um, AK-47s. They were at all the entrances. They were even in the bathroom. Yeah, in the bathroom. That's really weird. Um, when we left the airport, their armored vehicles were all outside, and they were standing. They were directing traffic. When we left Moscow, and we made our way to the countryside, through the countryside to the church, we saw broken down army vehicles everywhere, and it really looked like kind of a, a third world country that had been ravaged. When we got to the church and we parked our car, we noticed outside the church that there was a line of probably 100 people. They were, the church sat on a corner, and there was a watering well right there that all the people in the town would come with their buckets. 100, you know, 100 people line and they were getting their water and over by the church entrance to the doors there was a number of water buckets because the line was so long people would go and listen to the music on a Sunday and, and they would leave their bucket and go inside. They would get saved and they would come back out and do their watering hole. Perfectly planned church by God right in the place where every person's necessity for water would intersect them with the gospel. Well, when we got in the church I couldn't, 
I couldn't explain to you what happened. All the fear that I had, everything that we experienced from Moscow to the church and all the anxiety, it all left. And there was an immediate unity. There was this immediate brotherhood with the people that were in the church. I didn't speak their language. I didn't come from their culture. Nothing. I just sensed immediately we we were friends and there was this community that we had. And even though on my way there, I felt like every person in Russia was staring at me. I literally felt like Rocky getting ready to fight Ivan Drago. Like everyone's following you and watching you. And then you go into the church and you're like, man, this is amazing. The unity was instant. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, you guys, I I wanted you to turn there as, as, as you read this. It it talks to a group of people that are the most hostile groups in human history. You know, we have a lot of hostility today. We have a lot of hostility amongst different cultures and economic statuses and races. And there's a lot of ideas on how to kill the, on, on how to kill the hostility, right? Well, if we just pass certain laws, everything will be better. If we just restrict this, it will be better. Here's the problem. No law fixed the, fixes the human heart. No law erases the brokenness of sin inside of a person. And so despite all of man's efforts throughout the centuries and even today to pass laws and fix things that they think would, you know, solve a problem, they're still broken. But in Ephesians 2, God tells you and I an answer to the biggest problem of man's time on earth and frankly our day and age how do you dis- how do you do do you reconcile two disputing parties because there's no greater dispute than that between the Jews and the Gentiles they hated each other you won't find races that hate each other more than they did but something happens here in Ephesians 2:11 let me read it Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the uncir- by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, listen, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and reconciling us both to God, therefore killing the hostility. What is God saying? Despite all a man's you know, efforts to make laws and pass ordinances and do everything to bring people together, the brokenness of sin drives them apart. And so a few years ago, when I was sitting with a group of pastors in Salt Lake City, and we were all discussing in the wake of the, of the anarchy in our country, well, how, do we, how does the church reach the hurt people? As if somehow we were going to come up with something different than Ephesians 2.11 as if somehow we were going to be able to offer the world a different law or different idea, maybe pack together some ingenuity among the masses so that we can come up with man's problems. And I remember I told the group, I said, I don't think we have to cater to what society is saying because God's word gives us what reconciles people. He gives us what brings the masses together. Can we learn from one another? Of course we can. Can we learn from the hurts of other people? Absolutely. But when it comes time to curing the human heart, there's only one person that can break down the wall of hostility between people, and it's Christ. And so for the church to preach anything different than that would be futile. 
It would be to cave and cater to a world that ebb and flows with whatever ideology comes through its day. The church is to stay steadfast on this one, on this one thing, that God reconciles the worst of enemies. And if you doubt that, it plays out in our message this morning with the people that Jesus chooses, right? In Mark 3.16, we're told he chooses 12 apostles. Here they are. Simon Peter, James, his brother John, who were called the Sons of Thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. If you were to put these 12 people in a room, you would have war. You would have all-out war. Some of them don't like each other. Some of them would kill each other. You say, what do you mean? Matthew, the tax collector. He collected taxes for Rome. He was employed by Rome. Simon the Zealot killed tax collectors for a living. That's what he did. He hated Rome. The Zealots were a move against Rome. So now you have Matthew and Simon the Zealot in the same room. Tell me how you think that would go. You have, you have, um, you have John and James, the, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. They're impetuous. They're quick-tempered. They're the ones that are ready to mix it up. What'd you say? You know, they're the ones that will go in first. In Luke 9, 49, John is walking with Jesus, and he sees a group of people that are casting out demons in Jesus' name, but they're not part of his group. So what does he do? He tells Jesus, hey, do you want me to go stop them? From what? From casting out demons in your name. And Jesus said, well, those who aren't against me are for me. And I, and I sit there, and I read, well, what would that look like? You know, if John decided to go stop somebody, you know, walk on, hey, man, what are you doing? Well, I'm casting out demons in his name. You can't do that. Why? Because we said. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) I mean, John and James, you guys, are walking with Jesus in Luke 9.51, and they come through a Samaritan town, and the Samaritans hate the Jews, and Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and they're preaching the gospel, and they don't accept it. They reject them. And so John, you know, the lover, the one whom Jesus loved, walks to Jesus, and he says, hey, Jesus, since they rejected you, do you want me to call fire down from heaven and kill them all? The apostles, ladies and gentlemen, the ones who started the church. (laughs) What love. John and James were the manly warriors. They were the ones that were going to get physical. Peter, we know, was a part of that clan as well. He was the one that grabbed the sword and cut the poor guy's ear off, right? His brother, Andrew, his name means manly. So you've got, you've got at least five guys there that are ready to mix it up. And then you got Philip. Philip. Philip's name means lover of horses. He's the environmentalist in the group, right? He's the one that, that will save the, don- or save the donkeys. Those two. Save everything, <laughs> right? The donkeys, the whales, the dogs, the cats. We'll kill the cats, but anyway. <laughs> He's the bleeding heart in the group. Thomas is there. Thomas is the forever pessimist, right? Oh, my gosh, you know, let's all go to Jerusalem and just die with him. We're all going to die anyway. <laughs> While he says, well, I ain't going to believe unless I can stick my fingers into his scars or put it into his side. Oh, let's go die with everybody. You have Thaddeus, whose name means courageous, who no doubt is sitting next to Thomas going, dude, you've got to lighten up. You've got to smile, man. This is not as bad as it thinks. Right? Let's, let's go. You guys, you can imagine what Jesus' first staff meeting must have looked like. Right? You, you got 
you got, you got Matthew in one corner and, and Simon the Zealot in the other corner, and he's just mad dogging the whole time. I'm going to shank you when we get outside. You know that, right? This is the way he called them. They weren't fixed. They weren't pretty. They weren't done up. They were just raw, you guys. And James and John, you know, the John who, who would ultimately be the, be the one who would write the book of John, who would write 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. This guy was a mess when he called them right? The sons of thunder, John and James, had a mom who was doing their bidding and went up to Jesus, hey, you know, when you come into your kingdom, probably whispering because the other's listening, when you come into your kingdom, can my two sons sit at your right hand and your left hand? Well, the others found out about that, and in Matthew 20, 24, it says they were indignant. What's your mom doing, mama's boy? Why are you having to go plead your case? We're told in Luke 22, 24, they were all disputing as to who was going to be the greatest among them. I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. Man, this is great. You guys are going to do amazing at starting this thing called Christianity. We're going to build the church on the backs of the apostles and prophets, we're told. This was the apostles, you guys. But they led the way they lived. And it was expected. They didn't get called by Jesus and instantly become perfect, instantly become what they were supposed to be. They were living their lives or they were leading the way they were living. So I can imagine for any other person looking at this beautiful mess, they'd be thinking, oh my gosh, where in the world do I start? How do I, how do I get these people to a place where they're not weird and chaos? Well, they changed, you guys. They all changed because they walked with the Lord. And the unity in Jesus ended up becoming greater than any difference that they had with one another. They changed. Jesus killed their hostility. He killed their hostility. The relationships that would never, the, the Bills and Steve that would never in a million years work together somehow in Christ are best friends. The, the relationships built on the other side of the planet with people that want to kill us then and now, that people that want to kill us and speak the different language, there's a sweetness in the church. How? Because the more they hang out with Christ, the more Ephesians 2.11 becomes their reality. The hostility is broken. Now, it's worth pointing out, you guys, that when Jesus called these guys, they were fishing. Um, Jesus says in Mark 1.17, I will make you, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. The verb, I will make, is an interesting verb. It may not mean much to you guys, but it says something. It's given in what's called the future tense and the active mood. In other words, what Jesus is telling them is that he is calling them now, but they are not now what he's going to make them in the future. And that's the case with every person. When you come to Christ... Your objections for coming to the Lord might be, well, I'm not as clean as other people, or I smoke, or I do this, and I'm just not ready for Christianity. Okay, but here's the thing. Nobody is. When they come to Christ, nobody comes to Christ ready for Christianity because Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you now and over time what you'll ultimately become. But you don't come all made up the way you're supposed to be, and if you do, then you're fake. And you're phony. And you're pretending to be someone and something that you're not. 
You guys, when he called these guys, they had no experience in living out the heart of God. None. Not one. They were uneducated, a lot of them. Their hearts were divided. Some wanted to kill the others. You had type A personalities throughout this group of men he called who, 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 were, who were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Modern day vernacular, what does that mean? They wanted to use Christ's platform for their own, for their own gain. You know, well, I'm going to be greatest. They wanted to market themselves. They wanted to use the, what would be the popularity of Jesus for self-aggrandizement. I want to be popular. I want to be seen. I want my name on the marquee. I want my name in the bulletin. I want to be seen by men. That's really what they were ultimately arguing about, and nothing's changed in 2,000 years. Not a thing. People market themselves all the time on the back of Christ's scars. They make the church their little domain so they can have their, their influence and, and get their name in the paper or their name on social media and their picture and, and, and all that stuff. Nothing's changed. We recently, you know, turned all of our social media and all of that stuff over to a Christian company to manage all of it. It was way cheaper than us hiring somebody. And, and so they, they managed quite a few churches. And so the first week, I start seeing my picture all over the place. And I'm like, you know, my picture's on Facebook and on the, on the, on the banner and on this and on that and on, on all the stuff. And I called Michaela and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, we need to st- put a stop to this right now. This, this church is not a, a platform for Steve so he can have a picture taken of him with a little quote next to him on the black part of the picture. Oh, so-and-so, and then send it out to the masses. I'm not knocking. I'm, I'm not knocking those who do that. What I'm saying is Jesus is the popular one, not man. I, I, want, I want this church to, to grow and to be fruitful for the kingdom of God in Utah and around the world in the next 15 years because in the 16th year, I'm, I'm bailing, man. I'm going somewhere warmer. <laughs> I, got grand, I got a grandkid and I'll probably have more grandkids I won't have any more kids because that would be a miraculous conception but anyway uh, you know I want to prepare for what's next and I want the Lord to be the one who gets the honor and glory and when men elevate themselves and promote themselves you know to, to, to really use the popularity of the eternal God so that they can have gain that's just wrong I'm sorry, it's wrong. And that will never be the case here. I assure you of that. But also, you guys, these guys cared little. Not not only were they arguing about, well, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the lead leader? These guys didn't care about people. John wanted to kill a whole city. Why? Because they didn't join our group. He wanted to, if Jesus would have said, yeah, John, kill him. Sweet. He would have torched them all. He didn't care about people, but yet, you guys, this is the same guy who in 1 John 4, 7 writes, Behold, let us love one another. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Really, John? You're going to preach to us about love as you want to torch the city? He's the same guy in 1 John that will say, Beloved, if you do not love men who you have seen, how can you love God whom you haven't seen? Beloved. What in the world happened to this guy? What, what, what took him from a place where he wanted to torch a city where he's telling you, if you don't love, you don't even know God? I'll tell you what happened to him. Luke 7 happened to him. He watched a woman crawl in on her hands and knees and wet Jesus' feet with her tears. 
And he watched Jesus' response when the people next to her said, if this man were a prophet, he would know what type of woman was touching his feet. And he turned to them and said, let me tell you something. When I came into your house, you didn't offer me water or you didn't offer me anything to cleanse my feet. This woman hasn't stopped cleansing my feet with her tears. And I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And he turns to the woman and he says, woman, your sins are forgiven. And he turns back to the people and he said, let me tell you something. The person who is forgiven of much loves much. John watched that interaction, and he was mind-blown, like, my gosh. He saw what happened when the adulterous woman came at Jesus' feet. He saw Jesus' reaction to, him, actually, reaction to her when he said, where are, your, where are your accusers, woman? I have none. Then go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. He was there when Jesus cleansed the leper on the Sabbath day. He was there when a woman, after 12 years, touched his garment. He, listen, was there when the blind men were being pushed away by all the other disciples, and Jesus said, leave them alone. What do you want me to do? He saw how Jesus treated people. He saw Jesus interact with the family that was distraught over Jairus' daughter, and he saw how he, how he was the only one of the two other people in the room. He watched how Jesus treated people, and most of all, he was at the cross. He was one of the only disciples was at the cross and he watched a man that was beaten and bruised and spit on look out at the people that did it and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And his heart melted. It changed him forever. You guys, he was trained by the Lord by watching the Lord over time. Now, this is important, you guys, for all of us. First, to those who are called to lead or called to be pastors, they have to be taught. They have to be taught. They have to be under people that are a few miles down the road than them. They got to be willing to go through the biggest part of life that changes them, which is life, and then gain wisdom from people that have done it. People that, that just jump out into it. Maybe they can market themselves really well. Maybe they're fantastic at it. And they can just plop in and, and man, there's people and there's a church, but listen, at some point, the marketing is going to end and real life is going to kick in and there's going to be people that are going through divorces. There's going to be people whose kids are being molested. There's going to be people whose lives are falling apart and all your marketing in the world is not going to help them. They're going to need people that have lived life, people who have been slammed and broken by the evil one, but have kept going and have risen and walked continually. You have to be trained. You don't have to go to seminary. If you want to go to seminary, go to seminary. That's fine. That's a great thing to do. It'll give you a lot of knowledge. But do you know what the greatest knowledge there will be for you? Your greatest knowledge is going to be when somebody's sitting in front of you and they're looking for guidance and you got to dip into the word of God that you've never invested in yourself and then call yourself a leader. You are going to hurt them. You're going to crush them because they don't need my counsel. They need what God has to say.